Back again, back again, episode 27. Poet. We sat in an amphitheater, enclosed on three sides, the fourth open to the street, so sound filtered out and into the city. It was 11.15 in the morning, give or take, and Cassian and the Kings and I were listening to poets sing. The king was already asleep in his throne. The queen had a tight-lipped smile that reeked of disapproval that appeared whenever she glanced to her right to see the drowsy king, so she'd taken to not looking. We'd been there four hours. The poets played on. This competition had seemed fun in retrospect. Listen to music, sneak out with Rhea or Cassian in the evening, and do fun festival things that heavily relied on drinking and poor decision-making. Music and mayhem king sanctioned, and we'd get a poet out of it. We'd find our third, and I could convince the both of them to come with me when I finally gathered my nerve and ran. It was a perfect daydream in my head, and... Somehow it always ended with Cassian seeing his wrongs and tagging along, whether or not he was king after all. I wasn't ever really sure on the semantics of this part, glossing over it in my daydreams in the haze of we'll get drunk and have a heart-to-heart and the whole thing will get sorted, but in all my envisionings of the Poet Festival, I hadn't expected, well, drudgery. Here's how each performance went, roughly. The heralds called a name. Many of these names dragged on, title after title, that the kings never seemed very impressed with stumbling out until a bard would climb onto the stage, instrument in hand, dressed in their best. After about an hour, it was easy enough to tell who was going to be shit. The herald would announce their name for at least half as long as they'd end up singing. It became a game between Cassian and I, seeing how long we could make faces at each other as the shitty bards waited for their name to be finished before the queen caught us staring and hissed at us between our teeth. Cassian had glanced my way and mouthed, Told you so, after the first one. It was then I remembered our conversation from the first day under the Narwhal. Something along the lines of only the unexceptional reaching for strings of titles to give them meaning. It seemed this applied to not just kings, but poets, too. And just as it was easy to tell who was going to be shit, after about an hour it became just as easy to pick apart those who were sponsored by someone in the court from the rest of them. They would be dressed in a frightening amount of gold. While the caliber of performance seemed to be higher in this lot, seemed the court had taken the promise of generous compensation at finding the next poet pretty seriously, it soon became another joke between Cassian and I, trying to count from our distance the amount of precious metal laced onto each bard and comparing our tallies on our hands across the Queen's disapproving form. Don't get me wrong, though. There were beautiful musicians. The first five and ten and fifteen I was entranced for, at least for all the non-shitty ones, but... You can only intently listen to something for so long before you start to zone out. Whoever had made the schedule hadn't seemed overly concerned with taking breaks. Maybe that was shitty of us. 
not taking this as seriously as all the bards out there singing. Somewhere in my mind, I guess I just figured that I'd know when I heard them. Even though it was never my intention, I found myself comparing these poets to the one Rhea and I had heard in the El Hidanim Thraim, who sang out the prophecy with such soul-shaking certainty. They always fell short. A lunch break came at noon, and I practically leapt to my feet, desperate to be out of my chair and moving after so long. I was starving and a little bit cranky, and I had to stop myself from snapping at the courtiers who swarmed our row as the queen tried to subtly wake the king, and Cassian and I stood. Servers came too, bearing food, and I cast my gaze desperately to Cassian, hoping he'd see how badly I needed to start walking. His return glance told me to cool it. I snagged a roll from the tray and squeezed my way over to stand by Cassian, stretching onto my toes to put my chin onto his shoulder and wrapping my arms around his torso from behind. I'm bored. I huffed around a mouthful of bread, and he tilted his chin so he could make sure I saw him straight on as he rolled his eyes. And I'm pretty sure half these people are lying about their age, Cass. I highly doubt there are this many 17-year-olds in Isaiah, let alone musically talented ones. This is important, Elias, he said, but I know you know that. We will know when we find the right one. It's just a few more hours today. And then we'll spend the evening in the city. Getting drunk and eating sugar scones? I asked hopefully, half teasing, half demanding. He snatched the other half of the roll from my hand and lifted it to his mouth. I made a face, and then he raised his eyebrows as if to say, not as if our lips haven't been closer which made me lose my mind again. I untangled myself from him and folded my arms across my own chest. Sure, he said. As many sugar scones as you can stomach without throwing up on your boots. Sugar scones was a safer topic than kisses. It'll be more than you can. Right, Cassian said. Because you've got both the sugar and alcohol tolerance of a child. It's not a fair competition. I smacked his arm and turned to get more bread. At the far end of the row, Io from the far shore talked to a guard who, after a long moment, let him pass. Io locked eyes with me and grinned wickedly, teeth sharp and glinting. Snake alert, I hissed. Tracking Io, tracking us as he slid through the crowd to where we stood. Cassian frowned, confused before following my line of sight to Io from the far shore, ten feet away and getting closer every second. He shifted, then, into a princeling, a change I caught as it happened rather than after. His posture straightened, chin lifted, eyes shutting down into something cooler. I vehemently ripped into my bread. I stopped, bowed, came up with that same dangerous grin he seemed to live in. My sovereigns, he said. I owe from the far shore, Cassian responded smoothly in Rizayan. It was easy to see him as a king when he acted like this. 
the kind that would rule like his parents. He was a kinder sort of king, more sunset gold, less burnished when he laughed about sweets and lay upside down off a bed and stopped posturing, pretending. I hope you are ready to spin gold today, as you promised. Always for you, my king, said I. He turned to me. And what does the soldier want for my show? Gold, too? Flower, to tuck into that hair of yours? Cassian translated. I raised an eyebrow. How about a short performance and a tray of sugar scones? It sounded less bitchy in Rizane, but that was only because I didn't know how to make it sound bitchy in Rizane. Full bitchiness was intended in the English I arranged it from in my mind. Io chuckled. Do you know how much I hate that word? Chuckled. But it was true, and it fit him, and it conveys just how uncomfortable the not quite laugh was to hear. As the king wills it, Io responded. I didn't need a translation for that and I was already enough on edge around him to understand the message in it. I'd be the king's poet, not yours, Elihidida. That was fine. I made a mental note that if, for some god's forsaken reason, he was the poet, I would silently inconvenience him with shitty bits of magic for as long as we had to work together. But Cassian seemed to like that response. A glint came into his eyes, the wheel churny kind. Io was a contender for Cassian, and we hadn't even heard him sing yet. Show us your skills, Cassian said, but don't be a... He uses a word here, bendar feronear, that doesn't have an easy translation. It's like, show off and pompous asshat and overconfident purveyor of mediocre talents rolled into one. But I think it was a joke. Don't drag on. I'd like to see the festival before midnight. As you wish, my sovereign. Io bowed again, hands clasped in front of him. So you will be attending the festival this evening? Elias and I, along with the rest of Isaiah, he said. It's hardly surprising. Who wouldn't want to see the city all lit up? I can't imagine, my king. He turned to me. Elhida. I wish the both of you the best of afternoons. He paused. And that you will find the right poet, king whoever they may be. And with that, he left. I don't like him, I said, the second I was sure I was out of earshot. Why not? Cassian asked, but before I could spill a million versions of he's cunning and slippery and seems like he'd bring a gun to a knife fight, the competition was starting once more, and I was sat back down into my chair, listening to a thousand and one more poets. That was when Leander walked onto the stage. 
Do you remember Leander, listener? The bard of the Elhid Alim Thrayim. I, I told you then that they were important to our story, but not quite at the time. Well, we've traveled the miles to go to reach their crossroads. This is Leander. And they're glorious. Leander Feldrea and Reero called the Herald, and Cassian sent me a look that meant this should be good, because there was just enough divination in the name Feldrea and Reero, a play off the words Feldrum and Reum, which is like an enchanted old story, a legend given voice and wind. From the southern front, no sponsor. I caught my breath as they stepped onto the stage. I recognized them, felt the chill run through my chest at the thrill of magic like this, stories told like they did. This is it, I couldn't help but think. The screw Io from the far shore and every last string on his lyre, Cassian will hear them and he'll know. Leander stood differently on that stage. They'd been so comfortable in the tavern, sure of their actions, inspired and alight with the ideas they held that they dug up and spilled out for the rest of us to cling to and hope. There will come a soldier, there will come a poet, there will come a king who will write this broken world. They gestured and argued and turned it over to song when words failed, words failed. Here they hesitated, closed their eyes, studied themselves, hitched in a breath. Then another, one, one, two, two. And then, God's above. I've compared them to Orpheus. It's the closest we have to a similar legend where the flowers bloom and the night weeps comets down to earth and you're stretching stretching, trying to pluck stardust from the sky to create a vessel big enough to hold it all. It's haunting melody as it mourning for a world and hoping for something better in the same breath. It's plucked strings and minor keys in a soaring voice, thick with love all the same. How do you describe the song of a poet who can spin gold from air? How do you describe the song of a poet so perfectly in tune with your soul that maybe it's your heart that stopped beating or maybe it's the song is so perfectly in sync that you can't hear the pounding but for the plucking of the lyre. I didn't even realize I was crying until I felt the wet on the back of my hands until Leander's last note swayed out over us and they hesitated, hesitated before dragging a fist, thumb flat against the top of it from shoulder the shoulder and crossing their fingers out towards us like a broken promise. They ducked their head and left the stage. I sat, frozen as around me the arena began to clap. I didn't know how to move after that, how to act. The next bard walked onto the stage. 
Cassian caught my eye and gestured to the tear staining my face. My face flushed, and I snapped back into focus, scrubbing my palms against my cheeks and mouthing the song back to him. The Ander from the Southern Front, I said, as the next poet began to screech out their tune. Paris. Please. He grinned and turned back to the stage. The sun began to set. Somewhere in the mix, Io finally played. The song somewhere between fine and fair, an idolation of the kinks. The bootlicker. He made no point of hiding it, though that didn't negate the threat he seemed to be. The crowd clapped, and he bowed, and gestured grandly toward our booth. His lips formed the words, For the kings! but the sound was lost underneath the noise of the crowd, applause and such. He did not turn words into gold like he'd promised, but he'd instead proved something much more useful. He was malleable. Power is power is power to some, no matter what you have to do to keep it. Cassian nodded as did the queen. I think you did well, said Cassian, and I felt a sick sort of dread in the pit of my stomach. Elias, you agree? I think he was fine, I replied, careful to keep my tone neutral. But there were others I, I enjoyed more. He made a sound of dissent. Music is subjective, I suppose. The last poet played, and we headed out for the festival. Back Again, Back Again is written and produced by me. Abigail Eliza. If you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice or supporting Back Again, Back Again on Ko-fi at ko-fi.com backslash backagainpodcast, where if you leave a topic in your donation box, I'll write you a ridiculous little limerick to read out at the end of the show. If you'd like to hear more about the show, visit us on Twitter, Instagram, or Tumblr at Back Again Podcast, or on TikTok at Abigail Eliza Writes. Our outro music is Nightingales by Pierce Murphy from the album To Japan, and is licensed under an attribution license. The song was retrieved from freemusicarchive.org. Visit the description of this episode for full copyright information and a link to the page. Sound effect attribution, similarly, can be found in the episode description. If you've made it this far... Thanks for sticking around. I'm so proud of you for making it through your worst days and for finding happiness where you can. You are loved. I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs>